0: Someone can just give me a mic check, please make sure that the sound is okay. <coughs> and then, inshallah, I'll begin. But just uh, if someone could just tap in, type into the chat, uh, let me just make sure that you can hear me. طيب بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والعاقبه للمتقين ولا عدوان الا على الظالمين واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له اله الاولين والاخرين واشهد ان نبينا محمدًا عبده ورسوله مصطفى الامين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى اله وصحبه اجمعين اما بعد سو بكم تو انذر لسنيت ان شاء الله تعالى today as I mentioned on the Telegram broadcast group, for those of you that are on that chat group, uh, inshallah ta'ala we're going to continue with our tafsir and we're going to begin the tafsir of Surah Al-A'la. So last week, towards the end of the lesson, I mentioned that potentially uh, that there would be a a special this week. And I have something in my mind which I wanted to discuss or, 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 or to uh, had a topic in my mind that I wanted to present to you all. Um, connected to the first special that we did at the beginning of the year. So, at the beginning of the year, the first lesson that we did was on the topic of Abdul Ayy, which is the numbering of the verses of the Quran. And I mentioned then that there are six, uh, there are many sciences of the Quran as we know, right? So, the sciences of the Quran are many. And scholars throughout the ages have written on Uloom al Quran or the sciences of the Quran, and perhaps one of the most well known books. Uh, regarding that topic is the book of imam Al-Siyuti Taala. It's Fi Ulum Al-Qur'an but there are others who came before him like Al-Zarkashi and others who also wrote on the simil- on a similar topic from those sciences of the Qur'an as I mentioned in that first lesson that we had in this academic year uh, from those lessons there are six sciences that are connected directly to the recitation or the reading of the Qur'an so there are sciences that are not necessarily re- related to the reading of the Qur'an so for example Tafsir. Which is you know the, the, the main thrust of what we do at Quranic progression. Tafsir isn't a science of reading the Quran, so you don't have to be well versed in its recitation or in, in the ability to read the Quran to be, uh you know to be a scholar of tafsir. There are, in fact there are many scholars with tafsir who actually, when it comes to their Tajweed or their Qiraat or those types of issues, they're not necessarily people who are who are experts. Uh, for those of you that um that remember when we did the reading and the commentary of tafsir al Jalaaline in ramadan a couple of years back during covid uh, we saw that even ali ibn despite his 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 position despite his status as a scholar despite his knowledge and his virtue ta'ala when he came to uh, when he came to qira'at he would often get things muddled up he would make mistakes in terms of which qira'at mutawatir and which are shadhd and which and so he would often make mistakes or sometimes he would mention qira'at but he would only mention two and there are other mutawatir qira'at that are also available. So, uh, you know, th- there's not necessarily a direct link that one has to be a a master in all of these sciences, or if you're proficient in one, then by necessity, you must be proficient in another. However, there are six sciences, as we mentioned, that directly relate to the reading of the Quran in one way or another. So when it comes to opening the Quran and reading it, there are six sciences that are connected to one another. And we mentioned what they were. So, Tajweed, number one, number two, Qiraat, number three, al waqf and ibtida which is how to start and stop uh, in the recitation of the Quran when to pause and how to restart and so on number 4 would be addu al which is numbering the verses of the Quran of the, of the surahs of the Quran number 5 would be Ar-Rasim which is the script and number 6 is adab which is the vowels and and the you know the vowels and the dots and so on uh, that you find uh, above and below the words of the Quran these six sciences are directly connected to the reading of the Quran either because of the script or because of the way that you recite or because for you to know when and how to stop and to start as you're reading and reciting the Qur'an. And one of the things that I that I wanted to, or I think that I mentioned, I'm pretty sure that I did, is that the Salaf, alayhi when they would study Qur'an and they would study its reading, so often what we do now is we, uh, we, we kind of split these sciences and we study each one individually. So what we will do is we will study Tajweed. But the person who studies Tajweed doesn't necessarily study Tajweed in the way that the Salaf taught Tajweed, number one, but that's like a slightly different issue. But number two, they wouldn't study Tajweed along with Waqf and Ibtida along with Rasm, along with Dabt, along with these other sciences. But rather, what they'll do is we just study Tajweed by itself now. Or if we're going to do Addul ai, we'll just do that by itself. Or if we're going to do Waqf and Ibtida we'll do that by itself. And so we take each one of these sciences now as a, a single, uh, you know, kind of independent science. And even though there is a level of independence concerning each of these sciences, there is no doubt that they are also interdependent, that each one of them is, uh, is uh, you know, complements the other and is related to the other. So the idea of the special that I had was that I would do one or perhaps even two sessions on how that would work together when we bring it together. And for that, I was going to ask everyone to have a Mushaf a Quran with them, and I was going to try to give some examples and so on. Ideally, uh, you know, we would do that in in, 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 in I an mean, ideal world we'd have something like a zoom kind of session where you know we could do that so that it would be easier uh, I didn't have the time to be honest this week to go through and, and think about the logistics of how that would be done because ideally I would like to be able to write some of this stuff and to show some of this stuff and perhaps if we had like a screen share where we could show that part of the page of the Quran or that verse of the Quran it would be easier and so on but the portal as you know doesn't really allow for that type of uh, you know it doesn't really allow for us to do that um, so therefore, uh, you know, whilst I think of maybe the best way of doing that, maybe it can be. I want it to be a special, but I don't know exactly. Maybe I need to have a you know discussion with Shaz and, and some of the team and see if there's a way that we can facilitate that. Otherwise, me just speaking because it is a very practical science, these sciences, all of them, like Tajweed, it's a very practical science. I think many of you, or most of you, perhaps, or maybe even all of you, uh, listening to me, have studied Tajweed in one form or another. You'll know that despite the rules and the theory, someone could have mastered the rules of Tajweed study them from top to bottom, inside out, but when it came to application and recitation, their recitation could still be weak. They may have memorized all of the rules and know them like anything, but when it comes to the actual application of those rules, that's something which you need to teach and it takes a number of of, of months, if not years, in order for you to be able to reach a level of proficiency in the recitation of the Quran. And so it is a practical science in his name. All of these sciences, these six sciences are practical in their nature. And so uh, we just kind of need to figure out one of the ways of doing that. So that's something, inshallah, ta'ala, I still want to do. Um, it's something which um, you know, I, I I discussed this a few weeks back. I met Sheikh Abu Isa, and uh, I mentioned this to him, and he he really thought that I should also do a special session on this. I just need to figure out a way of, of uh, you know seeing what the best way is if. You know, if there is no other way, then it literally will have to be very old school where I have the Qur'an open and you all have the Qur'an open amongst you uh, you know, individually and then we kind of like try to just do our best and see what it is that we can we can kind of come up with. Um, but anyway, that's inshallah ta'ala for another time. And so because of that, uh, we'll continue with our tafsir and inshallah ta'ala that gives us then at least a few weeks uh, to kind of plan that uh, inshallah ta'ala uh, for whenever we're ready to do that. So, the, uh, the Surah Al-A'la, the Tafsir of Surah al as we usually do, we begin with the introduction of the Surah, and the Surah and its name, or, or the names of the Surah, as we, we often do in the introduction of, of, of this particular Surah of the Qur'an, and as we know, uh, Surah Al-A'la is the... <coughs> is the 87th Surah of the Qur'an, so Surah Al-A'la is the 87th Surah of the Qur'an. Uh, It is known by a number of names, the first of those names is the name by which we are all familiar uh, with the Surah, and that is Surah Al-A'la, so that's the name that most of us know the Surah by, and you'll find that amongst many of the classical scholars of Islam, uh, Ibn Qutayba uh ibn Abi hatim in his tafsir dani Abu Amr al-Dani in his in his books on Quran ibn Atiyah in his tafsir al Imn Nisa'i in his Sunan uh and so a number of the scholars of Islam called this surah by the name of Al ala surah Al-A'la and Ibn Ashur Ta'ala, as we know Ibn Ashur in his tafsir, and Tahir Wat often goes through like it's one of the nice elements of his tafsir that you don't always find in the in the books of tafsir and that is that he actually concentrates on the names of the surahs and the different namings and why those names are uh you know why the scholars chose those names for this particular surah and, and where where that kind of comes from and referencing that. So he said Rahim Allah concerning this name Surah, Al-A'la, he said that this is the name that was chosen by the majority of the scholars of tafsir, and the majority of the scribes of the mushaf. So as we know, classically, as we mentioned, you know, before the printing press and so on, people would write the Qur'an by hand. They would write the Qur'an by hand. And those who did it, uh, you know, the official copies of the Qur'an or the ones that people would, there were people who, there's people who's doing, who are doing it personally, the individual copies, and then there are people who are experts at this. This is their, if you like their, their skill or their trade, so he said that the vast majority of the scribes also call this surah surah ala And he said and that is because of the attribute of al-A'la, Allah Azza wa Jal being the most high, being mentioned in the first verse. The second name by which this surah is known is surah to ma rabbika ala which is essentially the whole of the first verse. And as we mentioned uh, when we were going through surah you ghashiyah know, I came across some, of, some scholars who said that when the scholars of tafsir or scholars of hadith say that this surah is and then they give the whole of the first verse or the majority of it as its name that is not necessarily a name another name of the surah but rather it is a description of the surah it is a description of the surah and so it's not necessarily counted as being an additional name but anyway uh, you know just for the purposes of, of making things easy, uh, easy for us to kind of like follow rather than me saying that these are the names and these are the attributes or these are the descriptions of the surah and so on. But just bear the reminder that there are some scholars who, who hold that, and that does make sense you know, in some ways uh, as well. Uh, so the second name, if you like, would be the first verse, Surah, and that is mentioned by Abu Ubaidah, uh, Muammar ibn al from the early scholars of Islam, Abdul Razak in his in his uh, tafsir of the Qur'an. Al-Imam Al-Tabari in his Tafsir of the Qur'an and also by Al-Imam Bukhari in his sahih and Al-Hakim in Al-Mustadrak and both of those are from the scholars of Hadith and uh, Ibn Ashur he said commentating on this particular name that this is the one that you will often find that is mentioned in the Sunnah meaning in the Hadith of the Prophet or the companion statements concerning what took place in the life of the Prophet they would often refer to this surah as Surah tu Isma Rabbi Kalala. The third name by which it is known is Surah Usabih, Surah Usabih, which is the first word of the first verse. And this is mentioned by Ibn Al Mubarak, Abdullah Ibn Mubarak, Rahimahullah Taala, and Imam Ibn Kathir. Rahimahullah ta'ala. They both call it Surah Usabih. Remember, as we mentioned before, that sometimes. Uh, scholars in their works of tafsir will use more than one name so they may say for example this is the tafsir of surah sabbih and then at the end of the tafsir of the surah so that, that surah may last a number of pages because of the length of the surah then they will say at the end and this is the end of the tafsir of surah to rabbika la'ala or vice versa and so on and so sometimes you will find you know I may say for example Al-Dani said this and then again I say dani said that or Al-Bukhari said this and Al-Bukhari said that or whatever it may be. So sometimes it could be that the scholar especially in the books of tafsir you will find this because they will often refer to the name of the surah multiple times especially at the beginning of the tafsir of that surah and at the end of the tafsir of that surah uh, sometimes they may well mention uh, that the uh, more than one name and so that's why sometimes when you have repetition of the names of the scholars when we go through the names of the surah, that's one of the reasons why. So, surah to sabbih as we said, Ibn Mubarak ibn Kathir, ibn Ashur said, and this is the name that was given to it by Aisha radiallahu anha, and it was collected in, by al-Imam Abu Dawood and al-Tirmidhi. And that she said, radiallahu anha, that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam can kana yaqra'u fil witr fi al aula sabbih, that he would read in the first rak'ah of his witr prayer, sabbih. And she called it sabbih. And so Ibn Ashur says, and so that, therefore that makes it very clear that she's referring to this name or this surah by this particular name. And that is why you find he says the likes of Al-Baydawi and Ibn Kathir and others referring to this surah as to Sabbih also. The fourth name that it is also known by is also mentioned by Imam Al-Bukhari Ta'ala, and that is Suratu to Rabbik. Suratu Sabbih Isma Rabbik. And so Imam al-Bukhari has And also especially in the books of hadith And the earlier books of hadith especially Sometimes you will find that the differences in in, in between them uh, Occur because of the different narrations So as we know these books were narrated to us As was the case in the olden days That they would not be narrated orally. Right? That's why we have these ijazas that we have. We have these chains of narrators from our time that takes back all the way to the authors of these books. So you can get the ijazah all the way to Imam al-Bukhari and, so, and Muslim and the other scholars of Hadith. The vast majority of Islamic books today, the classical ones, you will find the ijazahs that the scholars still, till this day, have concerning these works. So the point being that Sometimes the narrators change so there is because the meaning is the same. But the narrator may sometimes say, ma And the different narrator said, the second narrator said, سَبِّحِسْمَ rabbi," And so that's why you find that sometimes there is also a difference in the names of the surahs, especially in the books of hadith. This surah, like the surah that we did previously, or the, the last surah that we just finished, the tafsir of Surah al uh, both of these surahs, as you know, are surahs that are mentioned in the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. And just as Surah Al-Ghashiyah was a Surah that the Prophet would recite uh, often in his salawat, uh, for example the Jum'ah prayer and the Eid prayer and some of the other prayers that he would uh, that he would lead Likewise Surah Al-A'la is from amongst those Surahs also And so often the Prophet would combine between these two Surahs, Surah Al-A'la and Surah Al-Ghashiyah So in the Jum'ah prayer, in the Eid prayer, sometimes in some of the other salawats like Al-Istisqa and so on He would join between these two surahs, Al-A'la and Al-Ghashiyah. And one of the interesting things is that surah Al-A'la, it is said, is from the very early revelations. We're going to come on now to a discussion that some of the scholars have as to whether this is a Mecki or a Madani surah. The vast majority of the scholars of tafsir of the position that it is a Mecki surah. And from amongst them, there are those who will say, and there are narrations to this effect, for example, Ibn Abbas, Radiyallahu said that Surah al was the seventh surah of the Quran to be revealed. So we're speaking very early on, right? If the earliest surahs of the Quran are Surah Al-Alaq and Muizzmil and Mudathir, so we're speaking number seven in uh, you know in chronological order out of the 114 surahs of the Quran. It is number seven is considered to be uh, Surah al And Jabir, uh, I think it is Jabir Radiyallahu Anhu, said that it was number eight. So it's considered to be from the very early revelations. And it is something therefore similar to Surah Al-Ghashiyah in terms of its meaning and in terms of its theme and in terms of the topics that it discusses. It is one of the Surahs that is a reminder for the believers and a regular reminder at that. Uh, it is also mentioned in a number of hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. I wanted to mention some of them uh, for you. Uh, just so that we can see how this surah is mentioned within the sunnah. Uh, in the hadith that is in Al Bukhari and Muslim, the hadith of Jabir ibn Abdullah, anh, uh, he said, and this is the same hadith that I think we've mentioned before when we did Surah Al Duha, right? and, and we mentioned this before when we made the Tafsir of other surahs, and that is that when the companion Mu'ad ibn Jabir anh, would lead the companions of Quba in Salah, in Salatul isha so he would come, Mu'adh would come to Medina, meaning to the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ, he would pray with the Prophet ﷺ, then he would return to his tribe and his people in Quba because he lived in that area and he would be their Imam. Right, And this is obviously one of the evidences to show that a person can, who's already offered the prayer as a fard, can lead the prayer for others with his intention being that it is a nafal and the people behind him in the congregation still praying with the intention of it being farḍ, But anyway, an would do this on one occasion. He lengthened the salah. He started to recite according to some narrations from Surah Al-Baqarah. And so he made the salah very long. So one of the companions that was praying behind him realized that this would be an extremely long salah. He had work in the morning, he had a job to do, he was extremely tired, he needed to be up early in the morning and so he left him, prayed by himself and he went. When an heard this, Someone, some people told him after the Salah, this is what happened, this is what so-and-so did. The, the Mu'ad said, this man is a hypocrite or that is a sign of hypocrisy. So that man about whom Mu'ad said this, the one who leaves the prayer and prays by himself and goes home, he became upset at this and he went and he complained to the Prophet The Prophet said to Mu'adh, Mu'ad. O Mu'adh, do you seek to test and try the people, make fitna for them? Why couldn't you just read and right and there are different narrations as we said concerning this hadith in terms of the surahs that the prophet sallallahu uh, mentioned and named for muadh to recite but from amongst those surahs anyway in some of those wordings and some of those narrations is suratul ala why couldn't you recite and al-duha. so that's one hadith Another hadith is the hadith of Al-Bara' ibn 'Azib, radiyallahu an, also in Sahih Bukhari, uh, and that is that he said that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, when he came to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam in he said that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam did not arrive in Medina, meaning for the Hijra. He did not migrate to Medina until I had already memorized Sabe Hismah Ala and similar surahs so we know that before the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam went to Medina, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam sent Mus'ab ibn Umair, عنه, the famous companion who would later be martyred in the Battle of Uhud. He sent him as his ambassador and he would go and he would teach the companions their religion and he would teach them from the Quran. And so he's beginning with them from the surahs that are easy for people to memorize and so on. So Al-Bara'a is saying, now by the time the Prophet had made his migration, I had already memorized a number of surahs of the Qur'an, the likes of Sabih Isma Rabbi and other surahs of similar length. And by the way, that is one of the evidences, as we will uh, discuss shortly, one of the evidences uh, of those scholars who said that this surah is a Mecki surah. This surah is a Mecki surah. And so they say that Al-Bara, is saying that I had already memorized the surah before the hijrah before the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Medina. So therefore, how can it be a Madani surah when he had already memorized it beforehand uh, or before the migration? Uh, also, from that which is narrated concerning the name of this surah or what is mentioned concerning this surah is the hadith of An-Nu'mani bin Mashir عنه, that is collected in the jammah of Imam al-Tirmidhi that he said أن Rasulullah الله صلى الله عليه وسلم كان يقرأ في العيد سَبِّحِ اسْمَ رَبِّكَ لَعْلَى وَهَلْ أَتَاكَ Hadithul الْغَاشِيَةِ النُعْمَان Nu'man الله عنه said that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam would often recite in his Eid Salah and the Jumu'ah Salah these two surahs سَبِّحِ اسْمَ رَبِّكَ لَعْلَى and هَلْ أَتَاكَ Hadithul الْغَاشِيَةِ and it is also mentioned in the hadith of uh, actually a number of uh, of the companions Imam Ahmad in his Musnad he mentions the narrations of the likes of Ubay ibn Ka'ab and Abdullah ibn Abbas, and Aisha, and Abdul Rahman ibn Abza, uh, from the Tabi'in and others, radiyallahu anhum, that they said, أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم كان يقرأ في الوطر بسبح اسم ربك الأعلى وقول يا أيها الكافرون هو الله أحد زادت of these companions narrated the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم in his witr Sala would recite Surah Al-A'la in the first raka'a, Surah Al-Kafirun in the second, and Surah Al-Ikhlas in the third right? and so Surah, surah Ta'ala again has, uh, is mentioned as being one of those regular Surahs that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam would recite and so it's something which he uh, which he would recite and when the companions say Kana 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 means he usually would that it was often the case not that he did it once but that it was something which would be recurring and so the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam would recite this Surah in his witr Salah Likewise, uh, we have the hadith of Abu Huraira عنه, uh, in which he said that the companions asked the messenger of Allah what do we say in our sujood? And so Allah revealed the, the surah and the Prophet said say this in your sujood meaning subhana Rabbi a'la and there is a similar hadith to this that the Prophet وسلم, when Allah revealed the verse فسبح Bismi he said, recite that in your ruku'ah, meaning say, subhana rabbil azim And when Allah Azza wa Jalla revealed this surah, sabbihis rabbikal a'la, the Prophet ﷺ said, recite this in your sajda, in your sujood, meaning say, uh, subhana Rabbi al a'la. And there are other hadith as well, but I thought that, that would be sufficient for our purposes. In terms of the revelation of this surah, uh, there is, as I said, some difference of opinion among some scholars concerning whether it is makki or Madani. Uh, but the vast majority of the scholars are of the position that it is a Mecki surah. To the extent that some of them, or at least one of them that I could find, even said that there is a Jema'ah consensus upon this. Uh, and that is Ibn al-Jawzi. Rahimahullah Ta'ala, Ibn al-Jawzi said that there is agreement that the surah is a Mecki surah. And many of the others just simply stated that it is a Makki Surah without necessarily going into any of the differences of opinion. Ibn Hazm, Ibn Kathir, uh, to name just two of them, just simply said that it is a Makki Surah and they sufficed with this. As is often the case that some of the scholars when they consider the difference of opinion, as we've mentioned before, just to be slight or minor, it's not a major difference of opinion amongst the scholars, they will just simply suffice with the position of the majority and uh, the statement of Ibn al taala, also, as we mentioned before, that it is the position of scholars especially of the old scholars that if they saw that the vast majority of the scholars were of one position even if a handful, one, two, three, four disagreed, they would still consider that to be ijma. they would still consider that to be a form of consensus but then there are other scholars that show that that spoke and, and or in their tafsir pointed to the fact that there may well be a difference of uh, opinion. So for example, Ibn Atiyah, Abu Amr al-Dani, Ibn Ashur, just to name a few, all of them mention the difference of opinion that, that occurs. And the difference of opinion that actually occurs seems to be uh, mainly from uh, from a couple of sources. The first of them is the statement of al from the early scholars of Tafsir that he said that the surah is a madani surah, that the surah is a madani surah. And the second is a statement that is attributed to Ibn Abbas عنه, that he said that the verses, verses 14 and 15 of this surah in which Allah Azza says قَدْ أَفْلَحَ مَنْ تزكى رسم ربه Successful is the one who purifies himself, remembers the name of his Lord and prays. He said that this was revealed concerning the Eid prayer and Sadaqatul Fitr. Sadaqatul Fitr being the charity that we give at the end of the month of Ramadan. Right, that charity that you give just before Eid. And the Eid prayer and the Sadaqah both of them were, were legislated in the Medinan period. And so that is why he said or they said those scholars who use this they said that based upon that this surah would therefore would be Madani. Some of them expanded from those two verses and said the whole surah would be Madani and others from amongst them said, "No, those two verses are Madinah, and the rest of the surah is Mecki. And so it's one of those surahs that maybe partially was revealed here, partially was revealed there. But as we said, the vast majority didn't take uh, notice of that particular statement of Ibn Abbas, or didn't take it to mean what he what he what, that it is the revelation of those verses. Rather, they uh, they considered it uh, to be something which could be applied to. Those verses, meaning that those verses could be applied to Salatul Eid and Sadaqatul Fitr not necessarily that they were revealed as a result of them that they were the reason or the cause of revelation and there is a difference between the two cause of revelation means it's revealed at this time because of this incident verses are already revealed but they can also be applied to other acts of worship that's a different thing doesn't necessarily mean that they were revealed at that particular time and that is why, so, and so the majority of scholars, therefore, were of the position that it is something which is a, uh, a Makki surah. And I will mention the, um, the statements, or, or for example, Ibn Kathir, ta'ala, in his tafsir, he said that the clearest evidence that this hadith, or, or that this surah, Surah al-A'la is a Makki surah, is that hadith that we touched upon before, the hadith of Al Bara ibn Azib, anh, in Sahih al Bukhari, in which he said, the first of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ who came to us was Mus'ab ibn Umayr and then after him, ibn Ummi Maktum. And they would come and they would teach us the Qur'an. And then after them came Ammar and Bilal and Sa'ad. And then came Umar ibn al-Khattab with a group of 20 of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. And then came the Prophet ﷺ. Now obviously Al-Bara ibn Azim doesn't mean that there's only like 25-30 companions that have turned up. There were many more. But he's mentioning some other bigger names that Musab ibn Umair came first, Ibn Umi Maktoum came, likes of Ammar came and Bilal came and Sa'ad came and then Umar came and so on and so forth. And then the Prophet wasallam came to Medina uh, and he said, المدينة, So I never saw the people of Medina be so happy and joyous with anything, the way that they were happy when they saw the Prophet wasallam they would say this is the Prophet ﷺ, he has arrived, he has arrived. And he said that this didn't take place, meaning this incident of the Hijrah of the Prophet ﷺ مثنها, Until I had memorized or read alongside other surahs. And uh, Imam ash he says that just as we have that statement of Ibn Abbas concerning those two verses uh, concerning those two verses in Surah al that they were Madani surahs so he said likewise there's narrations uh, of Ibn Abbas that he said that this surah is a Mecki surah he said that it was revealed in Mecca and likewise there are narrations that Ibn Zubayr, Abdullah ibn Zubayr said something similar and Aisha radiallahu anhum also said something similar this surah consists of 19 verses it consists of 19 verses and um, Okay. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins his surah Uh, I'm pausing because there's an issue that I want you to look into uh, inshallah ta'ala I want you to research and look into and that we're going to discuss in more detail uh, next week And that is, a. I think it may have been something that we touched upon before. I don't remember exactly now. I have a feeling that we may have touched upon it briefly. Uh, But what I would like you to do for those of you that are interested in the research uh, component of of these classes and and to go away and just to look up something and read up on something and so on. uh, I have a question for you concerning this surah. And that is, uh, and we'll discuss this next week because it kind of comes into play at the end of verse number one. And so I think we'll we'll do the of verse number one, and then we'll probably stop there. And then, inshallah, ta'ala, you can you can look into this uh, issue. The question that I have for you concerning verse number one is that, uh, and you may have come across this, is that sometimes you will hear people after reciting this verse, hisma Rabbi they will say Subḥana Rabbi lā'ala. So after saying hisma Rabbi they will say Subḥana Rabbi Uh So the question really is, what is the position of this type of dhikr? What is the position of this type of dhikr? And is it something which is legislated, not legislated? And if so, when and where is it legislated? And is it something which is specific and particular to this this surah? So for example, is it legislated to say this type of dhikr after this verse? Number one. Number two. Uh, if it is legislated, if you take that position that yes, it's okay to do so, when and where, is that all the time? Whenever you read Al-Ala in Salah, outside of Salah, whether you're reading by yourself, reading by yourself, or whether you're the Imam or whether you're part of the congregation, meaning you're following an Imam, when and where is it done? Is it a obligatory prayer? Is it a is it a voluntary prayer? When and where should it be done? And then, is it exclusive to this particular surah? So, for example, can it be uh, at any point and any time in the Qur'an that you come across similar surahs, similar verses, or is it specific to what has been narrated in the sunnah? For example, if there is a sunnah, or we say, for example, just in this particular surah, you can say it for sabih isma rabbika but you can't just say anywhere that you want. So, for example, um, you know, Allah says in the Qur'an, مَعَ Are there other gods besides Allah Azza wa Allah Subh'anaHu wa Ta-A'la says at the end of Surah Al-Qiyamah Is he not the one who has the ability to bring the dead to life? Actually, I remember now when we touched upon this and that is at the end of Surah Al-Teen when Allah Azza wa Jalla says Is Allah Azza wa Jalla not the most uh, wisest and uh, and fairest of judges? And so therefore, these questions that are being asked and posed Does it, is it allowed and is it legislated for the Muslim to respond and say, yes, by Allah, Allah Azza wa Jal, yes, he is the one who legislates and yes, he is the one who has power to bring the dead back to life and so on and so forth. And again, you know, those previous questions would then apply to those instances as well. Is that something which is regular? Is that something which is open? Is it any time and any point or are there certain restrictions and what do the scholars say concerning this? So uh, for those of you that want to look into that, I think that that's a uh, an, interesting, um, an interesting research question. Uh, I think in certain cultures it is more common than others. From what I've noticed, you will find in certain cultures you will hear especially the elders, uh, old you know elderly people uh, saying this and doing this quite often and other cultures you probably won't come across it at all. Um, and so the question is uh, regarding this particular dhikr or adhkar in parts of the Quran, what Allah Azza wa is praised, or whether there is a question uh, that is being asked, and so on. Okay, so verse number one, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala begins Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim Subhi hisma Rabbi glorify the name of your Lord, the Most High, and that is the translation of Professor Abdul Halim uh, Sahih International. Exalt the name of your Lord, the Most High. Mufti Taqi, pronounce the purity of the name of your Most Exalted Lord. And Muhsin Khan glorify the name of your Lord, the Most High. The meaning of uh, Subhan or Subbih, right? Glorify, as we mentioned before, uh, Ibn Ashur and the scholars of Ibn Atiyah and the scholars of uh, the scholars of Tafsir that focus on the Arabic language and from amongst them, uh, Shaykh Muhammad Al amin Al Shinqiti, Taala they said that the meaning of At-Tasbih is to exalt and glorify Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from everything which is unbefitting for him. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it is to remove from Allah, جل, to distance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to exalt Allah Azza wa to glorify him from everything that is unbefitting uh, in its attribution to him. And so we distance Allah Azza, we exalt Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from being tired, from being weak, from being in need. From needing a spouse or a child or any type of help, anything which is unbefitting for our Lord and Creator, subhanahu wa ta'ala, jalla wa ala, then that is something which we make tasbih of. We exalt and glorify Allah جل, that He is far above that. Um, in this particular verse, though, there is a difference here, and we will see now a difference amongst the scholars of tafsir as a result of that. Often in the Quran, when Allah speaks about the his glorification, uh, glorifying him and exalting him subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is usually directly for Allah azzawajal. For example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمِنَ اللَّيْلِ فَاسْجُدِ wa وَسَبِّحْهُ Laylan Tawila" In Surah Al-Insan, and during the night prostrate to him and glorify him during the long night. And likewise Allah azzawajal says in Surah Al-Rum, فَسُبْحَانَ اللَّهِ Tumsuna wa وَحِينَ Tusbihun." And glorify Allah in the morning and in the evening and Allah عز و جل says uh, says glorifying himself subhanahu wa ta'ala at the end of surah al saffat subhana rabbika glory be to your lord the lord of all power and nobility from that which they attribute to him the difference between those verses and this particular verse is what then those verses Allah عز exalts and glorifies himself subhanahu wa ta'ala but here Allah is telling us to exalt and glorify his name Hisma ala, glorify the name of your Lord, the Most High, as opposed to the other ones that say SubḥanAllāh, glorify Allah, and there is a, uh, you know, a difference between the two in the sense that obviously there is an addition here that isn't found in those other verses, and because of that addition, the scholars then differed concerning what the exact seer of this verse is. Does it mean to glorify Allah wa or does it mean to glorify the name of Allah Subḥanahu wa Taala? Now we may seem at first instance that there is no difference between the two, and that they are both one and the same thing. However, uh, the scholars of Tafsir have some detail or have some discussion concerning this. One position is that the meaning of this verse is to actually glorify Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. It's as if you are saying, "Glorify your Lord, Rabbi Glorify your Lord, the Most High," and at the same time remember His name or whilst mentioning his name and so glorify the name of your Lord the name part is something which can be taken out and placed at the end of that verse and so it doesn't necessarily mean glorify the name of your Lord it's still speaking about glorifying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Al-Imam al tabari he said that one of the positions amongst the scholars of Tafsir is that the meaning is لعلى, glorify your Lord the Most High for there is no God greater than him or higher, higher than him, Subhanahu wa Taala, and that is why those, uh, you know, the, the issue that we come into those those people who, for example, will say that after this verse you say subhana Al ala, this is where they take that from, right? That, that they take it to be a command to glorify Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, and so they do so. And something similar is is narrated uh, in terms of in terms of this particular tafsir that it means to glorify Allah azza wa jal. It is uh, narrated by Ibn Abbas and from the scholars of Tafsir the scholar As-Suddi Others however said the meaning of it is to glorify the name of your Lord and what that means is to glorify Allah and to say that he is free from those that would use the names of Allah for their own gods for their own gods and for the idols that they worship besides Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, because we know that one of the things that the Arabs did, the Quraysh and the other Arab tribes, is that they would take some of the names of Allah Azza wa and they would change them for their gods and idols. So, for example, it is said Alat comes from Al Ilah. Al Ilah means the God. They took it and they feminized, feminized it. Is that a word? Like made it into the feminine form, and they called it Alat. And al-Aziz, they took it and again took it into the feminine form, and they called their gods Al-Uzza. And so when Allah Azza says, Hisma Rabbi glorify the name of your Lord, meaning exhort Allah Azza wa that is far above those who have taken his name, subhanahu wa ta'ala, and his attributes and applied them or used them for their own gods. Um that's another tafsir, another statement that also speaks about it being. Uh, being concerning Allah Azza wa Jal, that we are glorifying Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala and not necessarily just the name, is that the meaning is that you glorify Allah Azza wa from everything that the mushrikeen and the polytheists say about Him. And so the meaning is glorify your name, uh, glorify your Lord the Most High. Uh, as Allah Azza wa says in the Quran elsewhere, do not curse those gods that are called upon besides Allah, lest those people should curse Allah جل, uh, in return without knowledge. Others said that the meaning is to glorify the name of your Lord, meaning that when you glorify Allah and you say, Subhana Rabbiyal Lala, or you glorify Allah and you say, Subhanallah, it means that you do so with a heart that is humble and submitting before Allah سُبْحَانَهُ Wa Ta'ala. And you know, therefore, that Allah Azza wa because the opposite of Allah Azza wa being the most high, is that you are the most humbled and you are at the, at the you know, you submit yourself to the greatest extent. And so Allah Azza wa when He says, "Glorify the name of your Lord," meaning glorify the name of your Lord Al-A'la, that He is the most high, which therefore means that you, me, and you, the creation of Allah Azza wa should be at our, at, our, at our most humble, and at our most submissive. Um, Another said that the meaning is glorify the name of your Lord, meaning that when you pray and when you worship your Lord, then do so whilst you remember that he is the greatest and the most high, subhanahu wa ta'ala, meaning that you have piety and fear of him, Jalla fi'ula, and this is the uh, position, uh, This, these are the different positions that Imam al-Tabari mentioned within his Tafsir. Imam al-Tabari said, and the strongest of those positions that I hold to be, or the, the position that I hold to be the strongest of them is that the meaning is to glorify the name of your Lord from that which the Arabs used of those names for their own gods and for their own idols. So the position that we mentioned about Al-Lat and Al-Uzza. And he said, and that is because of the Narrations that we have of the companions عنهم, concerning this particular verse. Uh, uh, Shaykh Muhammad al-Amin al he said, so when we say that we are going to glorify based upon that position of uh, al-Imam al-Tabari he said that the position that it means that we are glorifying the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also encompasses a number of meanings. The first of them is that we glorify the names of Allah Azza wa all of them. So when Allah Subh'anaHu Wa says, glorify the name of Allah, the most high, glorify the name of your Lord, the most high. Al-A'la is from the names of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa It doesn't just refer just to that one name, it refers to all of the names. And that is why the scholars of Tafsir said, and they gave the example of Al-Uzza, which comes from the name Al-Aziz, right? And the same could be said about all of the names of Allah Azza wa Al-Kareem, Al-Rahim, uh, Al-Assami, Al-Basir. All of these names, the first meaning of glorifying the name of your Lord, is that all of these names in their most complete form belong to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. And therefore they do not it is not befitting that they should be given to any of the creation in their most complete form. However, there are certain names of Allah Azza wa jal that other people may have aspects of it and can be described using them. Like for example, Rahim, that someone is merciful, Kareem, that someone is generous. Latif, that someone is gentle, and so on. But when you say Al-Kareem, the most generous, Ar-Rahim, the most merciful, then now it becomes something which in its most complete form, in its perfect form, only belongs to Allah So Allah is saying, keep these names in their most complete and perfect form away from anything besides Allah From the meanings of, he says, he continues, from the meanings of glorifying the name of your Lord is that you glorify and exalt the names of Allah Azza wa from mocking and jesting and from playing with them. So for example, that someone who comes and they joke around with the names of Allah or they play around with the names of Allah Subh'anaHu wa Ta-A'la, or they call other people with the names that only belong to Allah Azza wa Like for example, calling someone Al-Azim or calling someone Al-Jabbar or using the Al which means the most complete form and giving that name by way of a joker, by way of a nickname, or whatever it may be, to other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. From the meanings of glorifying the name of Allah Azza wa Jal, he says, Sheikh Muhammad al amin Ta'ala, he says that you glorify and exalted from ever becoming impure, meaning that you don't mention the name of Allah azza wa jal in places that are unbefitting that his name is mentioned. For example, as you're relieving yourself, a Or uh in, 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 in times and places where it is unbefitting that you should mention the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in that regard. And that is why it is said that when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam took, as is mentioned in the hadith of Anas ibn Malik anhu, an, we know that he would have sallallahu alaihi wasallam Anas ibn bukhari and Muslim and other hadith that the Prophet sallallahu wasallam is to have a ring that he took that would have upon it its his seal. So when he would write letters to the other rulers, he would use that ring to seal his letters and his correspondence as was the way of the kings of old and so on and the leaders of old that they would have a seal that they would use that would show that this is official correspondence. The Prophet ﷺ took a ring and upon it said Muhammad Rasulullah. Muhammad and it is said that when he would go to the bathroom ﷺ he would take it off and he would give it to someone to hold as he went to relieve himself ﷺ. And likewise, you know, by extension, therefore, anything that has the name of Allah subhanahu wa taala, like the Quran, or like anything that may contain the name of Allah subhanahu wa taala in its actual form. So, not like something which is electronic in your phone. You have an app that has the Quran. That's not something which has is the Quran in and of itself. But for example, for you to take the Quran itself or an Islamic book that has verses and names in it, and you take it to the place where you relieve yourself whilst you have it with you, on on your person. That is something which isn't befitting. Uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of, I uh, will worship of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. So, as we can see, there are two positions. Some of those scholars said that it is to name Allah, uh, to, to glorify Allah Subhanahu wa Taala himself, and others said it is to glorify the name of Allah azza wa uh, And and you have both of those positions amongst the scholars of Tafsir and the classical scholars of Tafsir as well. Ibn al Qayyim rahimahullah Taala he combined or reconciled between the two, and he said that there is no doubt that when it comes to the glorification of Allah subhanahu ta'ala, then it begins in the heart, and then after that it manifests itself upon the tongue and upon the limbs. So when we said, for example, the scholars of Tafsir who said that from the meanings of is that your heart should be fearful of Allah Azza wa You should show hum- humility and, and humbleness and submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Another said, No, it is about the tongue, about praising Allah Azza and making dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He said, No doubt that the two are connected. You need one and then you need the other. And when you glorify the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you're doing so and your heart is glorifying Allah جل, is glorifying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and so you're glorifying Allah جل, you're glorifying his names and from the glorification of his names is to remove them from those uses that are unbecoming and befitting for the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and so uh, Ibn Qayyim as he often does in his, in his, in his uh, reflections in his contemplations in his commentary on the book of Allah wa when he sees that the scholars of tafsir uh, have these positions, he actually says that actually there's no uh, there's no difference between them, or there is no contradiction between them. Rather, it is easy to reconcile, and in fact, each one of them is speaking about one and the same thing. So with that, we come to the end of the tafsir of verse number one inshallah ta'ala I think we will we will keep it to that. The rest of the discussion that I have concerning verse number one is concerning the research question that I asked you. But I will. I will leave that we have some questions I think anyway and so therefore uh, we will leave that inshaAllah until next week because that will take also some uh, you know, some some time. Okay, let me just scroll back and see what the questions that we have. So the first question is concerning Suratul Ghashiyah, what does the first heaven include? Does it include the blue sky, we see the moon, the sun, the stars, all of the planets, is the whole universe within the first heaven? Allah Azzawajan knows best but yes, as far as I know, everything that we see, that we are able to reach is considered to be from the first heaven. And anything above that is only open for those that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows for them to be open. And we find that in a number of hadith from the hadith of the Islam and Mi'raj that when the Prophet came to the the first heaven, the angels were guarding its gates and they asked who it was and then they opened it. And also from the hadith in that regard, it's the hadith of the uh, journey of the soul when it leaves the body. The soul of the believer comes to the first heaven and that is where it is stopped and then it is given permission to ascend. As for the soul of the disbeliever, it is stopped at that point and it is returned to the earth. And Allah knows best. But in terms of you know how that works and whatever, Allah knows best, I, I don't really know. Is it correct to say that the throne of Allah is the biggest creation there is? That is something which you will find many of the scholars of Islam saying that the greatest of Allah's creation is his throne. Uh, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala again knows best but yes, here is the position of a number of the scholars Ibn Qayyim mentioned examples of the mountains in the Quran for example the mountain of At-Tur, the mountain of the cave of Hira is and so on is the point of this that these are further instances of the mountains being signs of Allah that these stories revolving around these mountains signpost us back to Allah our purpose and so on yes, that's one of the meanings and the other meaning is is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses these creations for His servants and there are many like uh, benefits that you can take from this uh, perform them is how Allah uses the mountains on a number of occasions for his servants. In the story of the people of the cave, they go into a cave which is in a mountain. Right? It's Musa in the mountain of at the Prophet in the cave of Hira, but also when he's making his hijrah in the mountain of a and so on. And so yes, you have a number of benefits that you can possibly derive from that. Uh, if you broadcast from Zoom to YouTube, can they upload the video to the portal? I don't know. All of this stuff we will have to look at inshallah ta'ala and then see. If you are alone in a public place and need the washroom, can you keep the book in your closed bag? If you're in a situation like that where you don't have any other option, you have a Quran, for example, you're going to a public service restroom uh, and you don't have anyone that can hold it for you, you're not in a car where you can leave it, you're not in a bus or coach or something where you could keep it on your seat. Uh, in your bag or something and, and you have to literally carry it with you then as Allah says Fear Allah to the best of your ability If you can find somewhere safe or someone that seems trustworthy that you could leave the Qur'an with whilst and uh, for example the Qur'an whilst you go and use the bathroom and you don't fear uh, or you're not worried that the Qur'an may be in any way disrespected by that person or by leaving him in that place then that is obviously better to do so uh, and even if it's in the washroom, but you keep it by the sink area where you would wash, rather than the actual cubicles of the toilet, because the two are different. The cubicles are enclosed, enclosed, and that's the place where you, uh, you know, where the impurity goes on. The place where you make wudu, where you wash yourself, is a place that is generally you know tahir, in in the sense that it is you know it's not necessarily a place where there is impurities. But obviously, if it's a public washroom, that's not always the case. However, that wouldn't be, you know, so if you can leave it somewhere there that's dry and that's a place that's safe, that's also better. But if you have no other choice and you can't leave anywhere leave anywhere safe, then to conceal it to the best of your ability, whether that's keeping in your pocket or keeping in the bag that you hold and so on. As I said, you do, you, you fear Allah wa to the best of your ability. But to plan ahead in those types of situations is always good, especially if you're someone who's a regular student. You always have the Quran with you and so on you know, you, you need to, uh, to kind of look at that. So, uh, you know, that would often be the case when we were students in Medina, we would often have with the small books, you know, pocket sized books, either, you know, books of, of, of Quran or knowledge or whatever it is, but they would they contain within it verses of the Quran or hadith of the Prophet and so on. And so that was sometimes a, a challenge. But if you're in the Haram, you leave it with someone. If you're going somewhere, uh, you know, in the, obviously Medina is a Muslim country and so on. And so generally, you don't really have a problem with people going to disrespect uh, Islamic books and the Qur'an and so on. Uh, but obviously, you know, that's not always the case living in the West. Can ayah be sent down twice? Can it be revealed twice? Generally speaking, verses of the Qur'an are revealed once. Uh, can they be revealed twice? There is a discussion amongst the scholars. So for example, you'll see that some of the scholars are of the position that Surah Al-Fatiha was revealed twice. Once in Mecca and once in Medina. But that's not the norm. And even if it is revealed twice, is it really revealed twice or is the first revelation considered to be the revelation? So for example, even if Surah al-Fatiha was revealed once in Mecca and once in Medina, wouldn't we say that its first revelation is the Meckie Surah, right? That's the Mecca revelation. Uh, and then the second one is, is revealed for, you know, perhaps emphasis or to show its importance or whatever it may be or because there's another incident and that revelation is revealed twice. Uh, but generally speaking, the Qur'an is revealed once. Because once it's revealed, it's revealed. So even if it was to be repeated again, uh, that repetition would be revision for the Prophet ﷺ as opposed to revelation, if that makes sense. Because once it's revealed, it is revealed. It's not like people forgot it and then it's revealed again. No, the revelation's already there. It's already come down. And now there is a maybe a revision. As we know, Jibril ﷺ would revise the Qur'an often with the Prophet ﷺ. And Allah knows best. So, inshallah ta'ala, uh, just before I finish, I sent out on the Telegram group for Quranic Progression uh, a message concerning uh, the other class that I hold called Al Isnad. Al is a, a program in which we um, read classical works and we do a commentary of them in a single weekend. So, we take two or three books on a topic. Uh, this, inshallah, in a few weeks, that topic will be the Quran, which is why I posted uh, that on Quranic Progression. Uh, in fact, I will probably uh, try to get the poster on there as well. Um, the so the two books that we're going to be doing are to do with the Quran. The first of them is the book Fadail al-Quran or the Excellences or the Virtues of the Quran by Sheikh Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahhab, taala, and the second book is concerning the etiquettes of the people of the Quran, Aqlaqu Hamilat al-Quran, by the famous Imam Abu Bakr al-Jurri, taala. So the idea is that we would read completely those books in Arabic and in English. And then do a commentary in English, and for those of you that are here in, in Birmingham in the UK, it will be at Greenland Lane on the 18th and 19th of November, I think, or is it 19 and 20 But that weekend. Uh, so in about three weeks' time, Saturday and Sunday, 19th um, and 20th of November, uh, and that will be uh, that will be a uh, like I said on the on the Quran. And for those of you that attend, you will get an ijazah of those books. And for those of you that are following us online, it's going to be broadcast on the Greenland Masjid uh, YouTube page. Uh, and inshallah ta'ala, there will be some form of, I'm looking into giving some type of, other type of ijazah uh, for those people that attend online and, and, and that like, you know, just sign a form saying that we attended the complete, complete sessions and so on. Uh, kind of like what we did when we did our, uh, zoom sessions on, on on that like special that we did, that readings that we did, um, on the Tafsir or, or the poem of Zimzami. Uh, will we get a chat group on Telegram that you will be on if you're rega- if you're talking about Lisnad, So, th- what we have at the moment is a broadcast group. Once we have like sufficient like people, because we just launched this today, um, Lisnad is still like a relatively new program, we've only done like four courses or so on or something uh, so far. Uh, then yeah there will be inshallah ta'ala chat group kind of like what we have with QP uh, also one of the things that we do, we will do inshallah ta'ala or look to start is because we don't have loads of time during that weekend our main uh, purpose is to finish those books and to complete the commentary so we don't have loads of times for Q&A but what we will do on, on Telegram is we'll do like a Telegram live session that's where we'll do like our Q&A maybe like after a couple of days after the course so for people who have questions and so on or things that they didn't understand then we can go over that then inshallah ta'ala so that's already on the QP telegram group, so you can just kinda of refer to that Bismillah. ta'ala. Jazat mun la for following, inshaAllah ta'ala. I will see you all next week. Barakallah fiqhum Muslim alay bin Muhammad wa'ala alihi wa sahbi ajmain musala wa alaikum Muhammadullahi